0: Good morning, good morning. Well, let's continue to worship God in the reading and preaching of his word. And if you remember from last week, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you wanna follow along in your Bible, um, if you open it up right in the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms or Proverbs and then turn to the right and you'll pretty quickly see Ecclesiastes. And we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 12 through 18. Um, The writer does not identify himself entirely. He says he is a son of David. He says he is a king over Israel. And so that makes us think likely he's Solomon. If he's not specifically Solomon, then he definitely has this Solomon-like persona in some of the things that he's been through um, and his gift of wisdom. Um, So I'm just gonna refer to him as Solomon um, because that's what most... Christians and Bible interpreters have done over the years, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, Yes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Let's dive in. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and the striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom Surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart had a great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. And I perceived all of it is also but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases. In sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? How many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Yes, and how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Yes, and how many years must a mountain exist before it's washed to the sea? How many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? How many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Yes, and how many times must a man look up before he can see the sky? How many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry? And how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Now, I'm sure all of you know, because you're rock and roll historians and folk music experts, that those are the lyrics of the Bob Dylan song called, unsurprisingly, Blowing in the Wind. It was released in 1963 on the remarkable breakthrough album, the freewheeling Bob Dylan, the album that really put Dylan on the map and started his fame. And as you heard throughout the song, he's asking a lot of questions, three questions within each of the three stanzas. And some of the questions, it's hard to determine their relevance. Like, how many years must a mountain exist before it's washed into the sea? Like, why is he asking about the shelf life of a mountain? I don't know. (laughs) But there are other questions wherein their significance is a little more obvious. Like, how many times must the cannonballs fly before they are forever banned? This is a question that quite clearly refers to war, In other words, what's it going to take for nations, for people to stop hating each other to the degree that they're willing to kill each other to get whatever they want? Or as Dylan puts it, when are the cannonballs going to stop flying? Or think of the question he asks, how many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? This question seems to be related to human dignity. In other words, how long does a man have to exist before we are willing to call him and treat him like a man? Not an animal, not a lower life form. What does it take for humans to treat each other with the dignity that we ourselves want to be treated with? A final one I'll mention. How many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry? So this one, it seems is similar to the last one and seems to be about compassion. In other words, what will it take for people to care about other people? What can change the human heart from hateful to merciful and make people able to hear the cries of the needy? So these are big questions he's asking. Questions about war and peace. Questions about human dignity and the sanctity of life questions about human relationships and care for the poor. And what does he say in response to these important questions? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. And he sings these lines with a very bleak, very dispirited tone because the idea seems to be that the answer to these important questions to us are as intangible as the wind We can grab the answers to these questions with the same effectiveness with which we can grab the wind. Ask as we might, think as we might, try as we might. Humans can't stop fighting each other. We can't figure out how to treat each other with dignity that we ourselves want to be treated with. We can't figure out how to stop oppressing and enslaving and hating each other. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, the writer is saying the exact same thing. Bob Dylan released his song in 1963. The writer of Ecclesiastes released his book nearly 3,000 years before that. But though their time periods are millennia apart, their message is in lockstep. We are on an endless quest for answers. And this too points to the vanity of life. We are looking for wisdom. We are looking for the knowledge that will lead to solutions for our world and for our lives. But we still haven't found what we're looking for. In Dylan's words, we're trying to grab the ungrabbable. In the writer of Ecclesiastes' words, we're trying to track down the untrackable. Looking for this wisdom is like grabbing the wind. Looking for this wisdom is like chasing the wind. It doesn't happen. Our quest is endless. It's all in vain. And as we look at this text closer, there's at least two questions that humans left to ourselves have not got any answers for, at least two. Have we found out answers about how to travel faster over further distances? Sure. We have cars and planes and space rockets. Have we found answers about how to communicate with each other more quickly, more conveniently? Of course. We have radio signals and telephones and FaceTime. Have we figured out how to build larger, more impressive buildings? Yeah, in Detroit alone, we have the GM building and Ford Field and many impressive performance venues. Humans have figured out a lot of stuff. We've gained a lot of knowledge, but there's some questions, some more important questions that we are just as clueless about today as we were in 1963 and as they were in 1000 BC. Two ultimate questions he can't find answers for first one what will fix the world what will fix the world so look at how the writer starts out in verse 13 he says i applied my heart i sought i searched by wisdom all that is done under heaven he says i've given myself to study I've examined by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And he's going to say in verse 16, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing wisdom. So he says his study wasn't in vain. He acquired wisdom. But what does he say that all this study and all this accumulation of wisdom resulted in? End of verse 13. I searched out all that is under heaven and it is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. In other words, in all of our activity, whether it's building buildings or building a family or building a name for ourselves or building a bank account, it is ultimately an unhappy business, life under the sun. Verse 14, he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. We can do and do and do, but despite our best efforts, there's no true gain acquired. And there's no final solution discovered. And then in verse 15, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. So this is kind of a vague, random-like saying that he just throws in here, but I think what he's saying is that the wisdom he's looking for, the answers he's searching for, relate to straightening something that's crooked and finding something that's lacking. And I think ultimately we can say this relates to the brokenness in our world. Our world is broken and left to ourselves. We cannot find any solutions to fix it. Our world is crooked and left to ourselves. We don't know how to straighten it out. Our world is lacking something. It's missing something that left to ourselves we cannot find. What can fix the world, he wonders, and he doesn't know. Despite all of his study, despite all of his experience, he concludes what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what we lack will never be counted. Charles Bliss was a Jewish man from the country of Austria in Eastern Europe, and he was born in 1897, which means he later lived during World War II and lived during the systematic oppression and extermination of his fellow Jews by the Nazi party in Germany. And Bliss himself was eventually detained by the Nazis as they invaded and conquered his home country of Austria in 1937. He was then imprisoned and enslaved within two different concentration camps, Dachau and Buchenwald, But gratefully for him, Bliss's wife was not a Jew, and she was thus able to appeal for his freedom, which he eventually was able to do. So after a long year and a half in the camps, he made it out. So this was a man who was intimately and tragically aware of the reality that our world is broken. Like the fact that... This sort of mass murderous violence is possible, means something has gone terrifically horrible and wrong with our world. So Bliss naturally started to wonder to himself: how can we fix it? How can we fix the world? And his answer was language. Bliss theorized that the word that words and the ways people use all the different languages allow for trickery and deception and the ability to mislead others, which ultimately led to all sorts of strife and chaos, even war. So if we could create a language that wouldn't allow any of that, then we could avoid all of that bad stuff. And it was a written language of symbols. There's a Radiolab podcast called Mr. Bliss. Check it out. You can hear the whole story. It's fascinating. But in the end, of course, it didn't work. As sophisticated and remarkable and maybe even helpful as this new language was, it couldn't change the hearts of those who speak it. And our world remains as broken as ever. And you could say the same things about the different economic systems that have been created socialism, capitalism, communism. You could say the same things about the different political systems that have been created, democracy, monarchy, parliamentary. You could say the same thing about the different philosophical systems that have been created, rationalism, empiricalism, existentialism, and on and on. Some of these approaches may be better than others and they may be helpful to some degree, but at the end of the day, whether it's economic or political or philosophical or a language, it's ultimately not a solution. It's chasing after the wind. It's vanity. And left to ourselves, our world remains as broken as ever. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. What's going to fix the world? Politicians don't know. Philosophers don't know. Economists don't know. King Solomon doesn't know. Bob Dylan doesn't know. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking remains lacking. The second question he asks is, what will satisfy the human heart? What will satisfy the human heart? So look again at verse 16. He writes, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, wisdom that surpasses all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So now he says, not only did I study all things and seek out all knowledge by way of a bookworm, no, he says, my heart had great experience. And then look what he says that this experiential knowledge he gained was. Verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Solomon says, I didn't just study wisdom and the writings of history's sages. No, I also gained first-hand experiential knowledge of foolishness, of madness, of revelry, of sin. In his quest for answers, Solomon gave himself, he gave his heart to the dark side of life. To the way of the fool. Because maybe, because maybe that's where my heart will finally be full and satisfied. Listen to what Hebrew scholar Robert Alter says about this verse and Solomon's goal here. Robert uh, Alter comments on verse 17, quote, Solomon's project is a comprehensive exploration of experience which would include reflection on the sayings of the wise and observation of the broad variety of events, and also in the realm of the senses, including even mind-altering intoxicants and promiscuous sex. And we know from Solomon's history recorded in 2 Kings that he indeed did stray like this. It's reported at one time that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. And what was the result of this experimentation? What was discovered through indulging like this? End of verse 17 and then verse 18. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, but I perceived also... This is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. He says, the more I learned, the more I grieved. The more I experimented, the more I grew disappointed. I tried to satisfy my heart doing the right things, walking in wisdom, but my heart remained empty. I tried to satisfy my heart doing the wrong things, walking in folly, but my heart remained empty. Left to ourselves, we have no answers about how to satisfy the human heart. A powerful and accurate example of this is what we often call the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. It should actually be called the parable of the lost sons because it's really about two very different sons, and Jesus' point through the parable is that both are equally lost. So this is a parable or a short story that Jesus tells the first son The younger of the two sons, like younger sons often do, rebel. He asks for his inheritance early. He heads to the big city. He squanders his his father's inheritance in what Jesus calls, quote, reckless living. So you can use your imagination there. And this younger son eventually goes broke, can't find a job, can't get any food, ends up eating out of a pig trough, just like Solomon. The younger son applied his heart to know madness and folly, and he came up empty. What about the older son? The other son, he applied his heart to wisdom. He did like many older sons are prone to do. He stayed home. He worked the family business. He remained dutifully faithful to his father, checked all the boxes. But when the younger son returns home, we find out that the older son's heart is icy, rock hard. He's got no compassion. He's got no grace to him. And we find out he really didn't love his father. He loved his father's stuff. His dutifulness was actually selfishness. So the older son applied his heart to wisdom and doing the right thing, but he too came up empty. Whether we do the right thing or the wrong thing, there is ultimately no thing that can satisfy our hearts. And in much wisdom, there is much vexation, much frustration, and he who increases in knowledge only increases in misery. And left to ourselves, we have no answers about how to fix the world and about how to satisfy our hearts. Left to ourselves, it is all Vanity, left to ourselves. But if we are not left to ourselves, if there is a Creator God who is over the world and is truly wise and all knowing, and if this God spoke and revealed Himself and revealed heavenly wisdom, then we could have a chance for some answers on earth. We've got millennia of bloody battlefield and broken hearts to prove that left to ourselves, we don't have any ultimate answers. But if God spoke a redemptive word of truth, if he shined heavenly light on our ignorant earth, then we could find a path to wholeness, to peace, to contentment, to purpose. And that light, that path, is exactly what is offered to us in the gospel of Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he famously tells them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but Through me. Jesus says, I am the way to the fatherly love of God that will finally make your heart whole. He says, I am the truth. The truth about salvation, about purpose, about joy. He says, I am the life, the satisfied life, the contented life, the fulfilled life. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the answer. I am the answer to how this world can be healed. I am the answer to how your heart can be satisfied. Friends, the bad news of secularism is that we are left to ourselves. And we got to come up with answers for ourselves. We got to come up with purpose for ourselves. We got to come up with solutions for ourselves. And Solomon here says, get real. There is no secular gospel. There is ultimately no secular answers to life's ultimate questions, but in Jesus, we are not left to ourselves. Heaven has come to earth, and God, through the power of the gospel, is making it on earth as it is in heaven. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Through Jesus, lives are being changed. Through Jesus, hearts are being healed. Hearts are being satisfied. Through Jesus, Peace can rule in our hearts and in our communities. Secular answers are blowing in the wind. Earthly answers are like grabbing air. But heavenly answers, true answers are spoken in the gospel of Jesus. So we got to ask ourselves, Where are you looking for answers? Where are you looking for answers for your world? Where are you looking for answers for your heart? And how are those answers working out for you? What's the thing? Who's the person? What's the experience? What's the accomplishment that you think that's the answer? That's the solution for me. I just got to get this. I just got to do this. I just got to feel this. I just got to taste this. Solomon stands here as a warning to us and he says, I've gotten that. I did that. I felt that. I tasted that. I learned that. I saw all of it and all of those under the sun answers left me empty and increasingly sorrowful. King Solomon helps us see the vanity of our lives. But King Jesus helps us see the purpose of our lives. King Solomon helps us see how ineffective our answers are. But King Jesus is our answer. King Solomon helps us feel the emptiness of our hearts. But King Jesus satisfies our hearts with his love. You think with me about John chapter four and the woman at the well. Jesus speaks to this woman and uncovers her heart as he often did. He uncovered in her heart That she was looking for the answer in all these different men she had been with. And he says to her, I am living water. I'm the one who can satisfy your heart. Drink from me, and you will never thirst again. And it's like the light goes on, it's like her cup got filled. And she leaves that place and goes back to her town. And what does she do? She testifies. I saw him. I heard him. I met him who satisfied my heart. All these different efforts that left me more miserable than from where I began. And now I can't help but speak. I can't help but rejoice in the one who finally did it. That's what it looks like, friends, to experience the satisfying love and presence and truth of Jesus. Everything else is blowing in the wind. Everything else is vanity of vanities. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning humbled in light of the truth that we all have been on our own journey of vanity, looking for answers, looking for solutions, looking for fulfillment apart from you. And so we're humbled, God, this morning as we reflect on your word, as you speak into our lives. Father, we pray. That you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit and help us to see the wonder of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the power of his love. Jesus, the wisdom of God made flesh. God, help our hearts to be satisfied in him. And Lord, prove, prove to our hearts that every other effort is vain. Trying to find hope in a man, a politician, an earthly sage, a lover, a whatever. It's all vain. Trying to arrive, trying to find answers by being a good boy, by doing the right things, applying ourselves to wisdom, it's all vain. And so God, we come before you this broken not as wise people, not as good people. We come before you broken people with our hearts open to hear your wisdom in Jesus. And so speak to us, speak to the depths of our heart by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we pray, we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together.